Welcome to You Don't Have to Yell, recorded in Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy. I'm your host, Dan Sally, and you may notice we're going without the typical fanfare as we're recording this Wednesday, 7.23 p.m. Eastern Time, November 9th. This will be released tomorrow morning, so we don't necessarily have time for the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe to do his magic, so I hope you'll bear with this rough and raw version of YDHTY. The reason we're doing it like this, of course, is the midterms were yesterday. My goal was to boycott election night coverage in protest of the horse race methodology the press uses to cover elections. I successfully avoided election night coverage and then ended up waking up at 3 a.m. to check out the election results anyway. So needless to say, I'm a bit sleep deprived. Now, thankfully, I have a wonderful guest with me. And if you've listened to this podcast for a while, you know I do work with an organization called Rank the Vote. And what Rank the Vote does is it fosters grassroots movements across the country to implement ranked choice voting on a state-by-state basis. And it's a cause very near and dear to my heart. And I have with me one of my longtime companions in our journey to bring ranked choice voting to the United States, Mark Bauer of Rank the Votes Digital Strategy Council. Welcome, Mark. Thanks, Dan. Good to be here. Yeah. Now, if you're a longtime listener of YDHTY2, you might recognize Mark. Mark and I actually met when I interviewed him for this podcast back in, I think it was August of 2020, when you were running. So long ago. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Running is an independent in Texas, which, you know, when people ask about that time in my life, because I, I was in D.C. and then I had to go back to Texas to do that. People always ask you, what were you going back in, to Texas to do? I've, I've lately just instead of getting into the story, been like, oh, you know, working on a political campaign. But Yeah, that's uh, which is true, right? Yeah. I just kind of leave out that it was my own. <laughs> yeah. And it was such a I mean, it was such a weird time, too. It was right in the middle of the pandemic. It was right in the middle of. Trump's re-election campaign, and and we thought it was weird then. Mm-hmm. You know, we thought things were weird then, and so then of course the election came and went. I started to do some work with Rank the Vote, and then you and I kind of kept in touch. And then I I brought this up to you, and you were on board. And of course, you have, now your background's in journalism. Yeah. So I was like, okay, we need to get this guy involved because you can write. So the genesis of this episode started this morning when we were chatting a little bit about the midterms and what they reflect about voter sentiment about the two-party system and what they reflect about the appetite for electoral reform. I've got a bunch of ideas, but I think before I get into shooting off my big mouth, I want to know from you, what stands out to you the most about last night's elections? Well, a couple things. The first one is uh, the obvious one, the Texas race with Beto O'Rourke going against incumbent Governor Greg Abbott. But, also, you know, I was I was at the, a watch party, so I would I did the opposite of you. I was watching with a bunch of politicos here in D.C. Mm-hmm. And uh, and one of the things that I found myself in the middle of it, it was exciting on one hand being with people in it and seeing their commentary. On the other hand, there was one point that a governor would was brought on to talk about house races. You know, this is a state governor 
up and coming, really smart, said really smart things that I, I agreed with. But he was commenting on the U.S. House race. And I brought that up at, at our watch party and I was the lone dissenter there. But that, to me, that that was indicative of the horse race approach to the election coverage that you were alluding to. And so uh, that was just something that kind of caught myself off guard because normally I love those kinds of things. But I just it, it kind of graded on me last night a little bit. It's it's interesting in in my boycott and in thinking about a year without John King's stupid magic touchscreen, I was I was thinking about how you know the history of broadcast sports, and there was actually a period in time when professional sports and especially professional football they were not well rated. Like people just didn't watch football, and you you have to think. If it, without a certain degree of artistry, football's like can be a, football can be a really boring thing on the television. And so, what the broadcasters did is they created this drama in in broadcast sports, and that really created the market for professional football. And I think a lot of that has happened with politics. I think the news networks have figured out a way to make it entertaining. And to add suspense and to give us all the theatrical things we love, minus all the policy, mm-hmm. minus it. So they basically they've just sucked out the nutritional content of politics, and they've left us with nothing but entertainment, nothing but blood sport, effectively. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to blame the state of political discourse on that, but I certainly think when politics is entertainment. And when publicity and platform is a currency in politics, that it's going to be sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy where politicians become more entertaining, for lack of a better phrasing. The media feeds into that, and then there becomes almost this arms race to see who could be the most outlandish. I, I agree. It's the, the tail wagging the dog, so to speak. And I just, I love it I, when... I do see someone who is asked a question by the media because it's human nature. If you're asked a question, you want to respond, even if it's not necessarily in your wheelhouse or in your lane. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just love it when people respond. No, that's that's not me. I'm just I, th- I think Brad Pitt did that once. He was filming yeah. a movie and they asked him to comment about Tibet. And he's like, I'm just an actor. <laughs> you know, like, what do I know? Yeah. About Tibet? Yeah. You know? Well, Bernie Sanders actually had the best response and I'm going to butcher it. But. What happened is it was it was after the 2016 election, and they were asking him if he was planning on running again. And he said that, I'm not going to answer that question, because what you want to do is you want to write a story about whether I'm going to be running again. And what I want you to be writing a story about are all the Americans who are in need of help right now. And that was effectively mm-hmm. what he said. And he really mm-hmm. clapped back at it. I, I think if you turn that on its head... I think there's nobody in American politics who is more masterful with the media than Donald Trump. Not mm-hmm. one. Not one. Love him or hate him, you were talking about him. And you knew everything he did from the moment he got up in the morning till the moment he went to bed. Mm-hmm. And he knew. And I think Trump's detractors don't understand exactly how well he knows his supporters and how well he knows the media. I don't think there's any politician who knows both anywhere near as well as he does. 
Yeah, absolutely yeah. not. I, and I agree. And he, he was able to leverage that to his benefit artfully, you know, and he's not yeah. saying like the art of the deal, I think, is, you know, smoke and mirrors. But that is probably the one thing that he does really well. Uh, yeah. That he, he knows how to work it. Yeah, he just sucks all the oxygen out of the room. Um, <laughs> I want to get back to Donald Trump because there's something specific to Donald Trump in the midterms I want to ask you. Before we get into that, there were a couple of elections that really jumped out at me. And interestingly enough, or maybe not so interestingly, these were ones that were actual total sleepers. So these weren't the hot battleground states like Pennsylvania and Arizona. These were reliable states with a heavy partisan lean that had some pretty interesting a pr pretty interesting outcomes and and I'm going to go through both of them and then I want your take on it the the first one was the race for US Senate in Utah now Utah is a reliable republican stronghold so to to put this in perspective for folks the last time Utah sent a Democrat to the U.S. Senate, Republican incumbent Mike Lee was not alive. He was not wow. born. Yeah, so he has known his entire lifetime has only seen U.S. senators who are, or has only seen Republicans sent to the Senate from his home state. Mm -hmm. Now, he has coasted comfortably to reelection twice. This time, he actually was in a bit of a competition with a candidate by the name of Evan McMullen, former Republican who decided to run as an independent due to what he called the unmooring of the truth of the Republican Party. And there was a period of time where it looked like McMullen might eke out a win and then Lee ultimately widened the gap. But the interesting thing is McMullen has outperformed every rival to a Republican incumbent in Utah history. So typically, Democrats have been the ones obviously competing against the Republican senators. They typically bring in about 30% of the vote. McMullen brought in 45%. So he had a sizable chunk of voters who were really bought into this. Now, the second race is the Oregon governor's race. Now, Oregon has a reliable tradition of sending Democrats to the governor's mansion. So they typically vote, vote to the left. And again, this is a case where you would think the Democrat would be the shoo-in. Now, what happened was a Democrat declared a run as an independent, Betsy Johnson, who's a longtime state legislator uh, against the Democrat, Tina Kotek. And, and the reason for her bid was very similar to McMullen. Uh, she saw that there were excesses in both parties and that the partisan extremes had really taken over. And now there was a period of time where Johnson was competing. It was a really, it was a three-way race. She since dropped off, but she's eaten enough into Tina Kotek's lead where now it's neck and neck. So mm -hmm. th there could actually be a Republican sent to the governor's mansion in Oregon. I believe it hasn't been called yet. And, and this would be for the first time again in almost 40 years. Now, the thing that I found interesting in both cases is that both people showed that there is a large enough appetite for policy choices outside of those being presented in our current two-party dynamic to pose a threat to the major parties. What's your take on that? 
it's kind of strikes me that in both of those races, you have people who have defected from their party and mm -hmm. are running as an independent and taking a sizable chunk of the electorate. And I think that's what you're you're seeing in those races that you bring up is that there's there's a lot of there's a lot of purple in the country and people just don't have a real legitimate outlet for the expression of those beliefs. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel very much the same way. It's not that I don't have policy opinions, but I feel like the signal is so jumbled up from our electoral process that we're really not going to make any headway. So I could have my issues with the deficit or have my issues with foreign policy or, or what have you. And certainly, like, I have ideas. I have people I prefer but the flip side of that is we can't fix that with the current system we have in place. Mm -hmm. It's like trying to change a light bulb before you fix the stool. Like the stool has to be fixed first, and that stool is elections. And so mm -hmm. I find it very difficult to really get riled up about any given policy when I know it's really the way we're sending people to office that's the problem. The, the interesting thing, you know, we, we talked about those two races that – have kind of gone sideways as a result of the first past the post system. And again, I'm going to say this with the understanding that the listener probably already knows what this is, but in America's system of elections, you don't need 50% of the vote to win. You just need one more vote than second place. And so what that does is that creates room for spoilers that creates people who cater to a cobbled together faction of hardened partisans, as opposed to really trying to figure out where the consensus opinion of their constituents lies. And so again, we're, we're seeing that the weaknesses in that system come into play in these two races. The interesting thing is then you have Alaska which uses final five voting and final five voting is a system where there's an open primary, the top five vote getters go on to the general election. And then out of that, the candidates determined via ranked choice voting. And we have a similar situation, five candidates, there's a Trump backed Republican, there's a moderate Republican, Lisa Murkowski, and then there's a Democrat. And in this situation, you could have a scenario where the Trump backed Republican and the moderate split the Republican vote and they end up accidentally electing a Democrat. But thanks to ranked choice voting, Alaska, which is overwhelmingly Republican, is going to elect a Republican. We still don't know who yet, but they're going to elect a Republican, which is what the true majority of voters wants. I have a question for you. I think we're both like pretty hyped up from last night. And so we were very active on Twitter. And you said something really interesting I, wanna, I, I want you to comment on. Because you, you talked about why Democrats performed poorly in Texas. And the things you mentioned was that the state's performing pretty well economically and the status quo is really working. And the Democrats aren't really offering a clear alternative other than don't vote for the GOP. Look at all the horrible things the GOP has done. Can you elaborate on that? Because obviously you're much closer to what's going on in Texas than I am or than a lot of our listeners are. Yeah. Uh, you know, I grew up in Texas. I grew up Republican. Uh, when I ran my independent bid, I was, I was doing that because I was, I was running an opposition campaign to the status quo. I didn't like what Republicans were doing with Trump. 
and uh, some of the things they were saying concerning race and a bunch of other things. But on the flip side, I didn't think that the Democrats had a clear alternative back then even. And I didn't want mm. Texas to become this battleground. And uh, that's not to say Texas Democrats don't care about Texas. They do very much so. But I think when it comes to offering that alternative, Texans are proud. Texans are happy for the most part with how Texas is, is rolling. You have a lot of people who are moving to Texas from you know, more liberal states. These are more conservative people who are leaving liberal California coming to conservative Texas, but they're coming for a reason. Corporations, businesses are coming to Texas for a reason. And the infrastructure, you know, the the storm, the ice storm notwithstanding, I think a lot of people just chalk that up to being a, an act of God, right? A, a 100-year event and less so a knock on the Texas infrastructure. And so, and in COVID, we're just now coming out of the pandemic, you know, for the most part after two years and I was splitting time between Dallas and DC in that point, and I was going to Chicago a lot, and it was incredible because I would go to a, a restaurant indoors in Texas, unmasked, and then I would go visit Chicago, and people are still masking outside or, or uh, you know, all, all over the place. And I don't want to get into the, the pandemic response, but that was a, a thing that was real. Texas rebounded pretty quickly from the pandemic better than other places. They were they had kids back in school faster than other big cities, other states. And people recognize that. Uh, and uh, and that's a thing that's, I think, going to linger for a while. So, it, you know, that doesn't mean that Texas doesn't have its faults, but you want someone who is bona fide, proud of Texas, first and foremost, acknowledge the good about Texas. And then you can get into the, the blights, you know, because there are blemishes. There are definitely things that I disagree on Texas leadership about. But I'm, you know, for the most part, people are, are doing well enough that they can they provide for their family. They can own their firearms. Right. And so for for Texans, at least right now, I don't think that they feel any pressure to change things. You know, I'll say this and I, I try to hedge my partisan expressions on this podcast for the sake of listeners on the left and the right. But I, I want to ask you this, like when I look at Beto O'Rourke, I see someone who does a really good job campaigning in every state, but Texas. Am I wrong? No, I think, and I, I wanted, I was, I was trying to find his out of state donors, but he's, he's yeah. great. I mean, he's a, I really think if he's stuck to fundraising, for the Democratic Party, I think he'd go gangbusters. I mean, he's yeah. he really is good. Yeah, I, I agree because I feel like a lot of what he says really resonates with a lot of people like in the Northeast. Mm -hmm. But I just don't know how it works in Texas. And and I think it's funny, like you were talking about the pandemic too. And what I thought of was when DeSantis flew those migrants to Martha's Vineyard. Mm -hmm. I remember the first thing I saw was local media, local media here in Boston showing high school kids delivering supplies and people organizing to make sure they had places to stay. It was a moment I was very proud of. And then I looked at Fox News and it was all about like how the pearl clutching liberals in Martha's Vineyard were ready to eject these people from their island as quickly as they could. And it just mm -hmm. couldn't have been further from the truth. I mean, to be fair... If DeSantis had sent that migrant flight before tourist season had started, they would all have jobs. They would have been on that island. They would have been mm -hmm. whooping it up. So, but I think to get back to how that ties into the pandemic, I think 
when I was watching news of Florida and of Texas on outlets like CNN, it was like Abbott and his reckless COVID policy and, you know, DeSantis doesn't care about people dying. And, and, and look, look to, to an extent, I bought it. Like, I thought it was kind of crazy. We were approaching things very differently here. But now that the fog of war is lifted, I'm having a tough time figuring out if they did it wrong or not. And, yeah. and I'm not saying we did it wrong. You know, I'm not saying Boston didn't do what it should have done. But you know, I know friends who moved down to Miami during the pandemic. They said there was no shutdown. Gyms mm-hmm. were open, restaurants were open, and so we're going to need to be five to ten years removed from this thing before we can comment on it objectively. But I think it, it it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be impossible to reach a shared truth over something so objectively true, like a virus and how it affects the human body. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah. and I and, and I'm not, I, I you know. I generally trust the Massachusetts state government. And if they tell me to mask up and avoid crowds, I'm going to do it. But I also don't know enough about medicine to say with any confidence that Florida was wrong or Texas was wrong. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. a very, that's probably a controversial statement for me to express doubt, but <laughs> it's just, I'm not saying we were wrong. I'm just saying I'm not, you know, I don't necessarily know the answer there. Yeah. And I'm I'm happy to be agnostic on that like you like I you know I think it's entirely possible that Abbott and DeSantis were just being maybe it is it's possible that they were being reckless right it's it's yeah. possible that they were reactionary in terms of well you can't tell me what to do and then they kind of just happened to fall into the right the right response and I think that that's it's interesting you have on the one hand you have the Trump dynamic where you know Democrats should ju- just owned the White House and the House for the next 10 years. But then you have the pandemic response. And based on that, really, I think, muddied things up and made people look at it sideways. One thing I will tell you is I know a number of people personally who were working in hospitals during the COVID pandemic here, and it made an impression on them. Let's put it that Mm -hmm. way. It was very serious. So uh, I know at least here it was a real problem. And so what we started this conversation on with the horse race, I think that what's happened is partisan branding has really overtaken what politics used to be made of, which was really more local uh, relationships in a way, or, or local branding, for lack of a better phrasing. And elected officials really won elections and lost elections based on their local brands. And now because of the nature of media, these people have to speak to a national audience in order to get the visibility they need to raise funds and win re-election and so on. And so as a result, that national dialogue becomes a local dialogue. And all of a sudden you don't have people talking about the stuff that matters to the local region. Like, great mm. example was, I'm just not too far from New Hampshire, so we were getting New Hampshire campaign ads. And I remember on the right, they were talking about securing the border. And I was just like, like what border? Like, Canada? Like, what are we... We, we couldn't be any... You could... You literally, in the United States of America, 
couldn't be any further away unless you were one state to the Northeast. That's it. That's, you can't get much further from Mexico unless you're in Alaska. And, and I think that just tells me how, how, how nationalized the dialogue has become and how much we've lost maybe our regional individuality. And, and again, getting back to a state like Texas where it has its own culture and its own pride and so on, to have somebody from either side come in and try and fit that mold around. It doesn't really do the voters service. I don't think Mm -hmm. I have one last question for you. And, and this is something I thought of this morning. So as I was waking up and reading the coverage, there were people all ready to write Donald Trump's political obituary, basically saying the candidates he backed failed and mm. this was the decline of Trump. And DeSantis had such a great showing in Florida. He's obviously the rising star in the Republican Party and so on. And I, to an extent, I agree with that. The flip side of it is Donald Trump is a person who refused to concede an election. He lost by 7 million votes. Wasn't even close. 7 million votes. He still says he won. He still says he won. Okay, so I don't know how much I buy the argument that he's just going to skulk away and not run for re-election just because he doesn't win the GOP nomination. I think that he is going to enter into the race as an independent candidate, either out of ego or out of spite. He's going to split the Republican vote and he's going to thwart any chance that the Republicans taking the White House for as long as he's alive. Thoughts? It's interesting. I think if he were not to get the GOP nomination, I think it's one of those things where he he would see the writing on the wall and he would scapegoat it, and that would be his, his reason not to run for president and lose. Because mm. um, I think he understands that he would. I mean, like you said, he, he lost by so many votes, 7 million votes. Yeah. So I think if he were not to get the GOP nomination, I think he would just try to take the party down with him and and say that it was some sort of rigged nomination process. And I, I don't think he would launch an independent bid. I think that that would just be a lot of work, more work than, than I think that he would be willing to put in to, to likely lose. Um, yeah. But I could I could totally see him... I could totally see him blaming the nomination process and, and just dragging the party down. That's an interesting him. take. That's yeah. an interesting take. I'll tell you what, the reason I want to believe that theory is because I think that getting back to the races in Utah and Oregon, I think that what it's going to take to really spur reform is when both parties are threatened enough by the current voting system that they really need to adapt. Mm -hmm. And I think nothing would send the GOP into the arms of ranked choice voting quicker than if they had this spoiler who is just going to be nipping at their heels every election, Mm -hmm. nominating his own candidates, running for president every time. It'd be like a Ross Perot who never quit effectively. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, and, and I think 
I think that could be the best thing for getting institutional buy-in amongst one of the two major parties for this reform. Mm. Because because I do I do genuinely think that on both sides, I think the political operatives would much rather be paying attention to what the voters are thinking than trying to figure out how they're not going to get outflanked in a primary. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I think yeah. I, this could really this could really help turn down the temperature quite a bit. So that's that's my wishful thinking. I agree with your side of things too, though. I could see him just kind of, you know, skulking off. And mm-hmm. I mean, I got to say, like, if I were him, I'd just do the rallies. Yeah. That's, that's the fun part, you know? Right. Yeah. Like, why exactly. not? Throw hats yeah. out to the crowd, you know? It's, not, it's like a good time. Everybody loves you. Yeah, just stick to rallies and and selling books and t-shirts and hats, you know. That's it. Then friggin' hit the back nine at Mar-a-Lago by by evening. It's really it's it's a wonderful life. Boom, done. <laughs>